Chapter Nineteen of the Friendly Terrace Quartet, or Peggy Raymond at the Poplars by Harriet Lemis Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, Propaganda. The winged week was over, and Peggy was back at work. Short as the time of her absence had seemed, it had been long enough to bring about radical changes in the community at the Poplars. Autumn was at hand. The students were getting impatient for a glimpse of home, and something in the way of relaxation before entering on the work of another strenuous year. The wage-earners were thinking of securing permanent positions. A number of the girls had already taken their departure, so the table in the dining-room seemed needlessly long. And, on the other hand, several new faces were in evidence. Two stenographers and a clerk in a mercantile establishment had decided to devote their brief vacations to farm work, and although it was unlikely that in two weeks' time they would acquire sufficient experience to be really valuable, because of the serious shortage of workers, they had been warmly welcomed. Marion Keith was complaining of a lame wrist. "'Peggy,' she announced on the second morning, "'I'm going to have you drive the bus to-day.' "'Me, Marion?' Peggy cried with every evidence of consternation. "'It's time you were beginning. You've been talking about it all summer, and you've sat beside me and watched me, so that you can do it yourself. Yes, and the more I've watched, the more impossible it has seemed that I should ever do it. Don't be a goose, Peggy. You can't learn to swim without going near the water, and you can't learn to run a car without trying it. And then I'll be right beside you, ready to help you out. The closing assurance bolstered up Peggy's shaking confidence to such an extent that she ceased to protest, although she was evidently ill at ease. She drove the bus to the Sweetwater farm that morning without any mishap, and she had accomplished about a third of the distance back in the afternoon, when Marian suddenly leaned forward and took the wheel from her. Peggy started violently, turning white. "'Oh, Marian, what is it? What did I do wrong?' "'Nothing at all. Everything was all right, but you looked as if you were under such a strain that all at once I wondered if it was good for you. Why can't you take it easy, Peggy, when I'm right here?' "'I don't know why,' replied Peggy, involuntarily sighing in her relief that the responsibility of the bus was now on Marion's shoulders. "'I'm afraid I wasn't cut out for a chauffeur.' "'You're not yourself yet, Peggy,' Marion answered with sisterly solicitude. "'I happened to look at you just now, and your eyes were bulging, and your face crimson. And when I took the wheel you turned as white as a sheet. I was afraid I'd done something wrong. Well, even if you had, it couldn't have been anything dreadful, for we're going merrily on our way.' but I can see that it's too much of a tax on you to make it worth while to try it. I shan't ask you again. A second time Peggy sighed her relief, though she tried to appear contrite. I'm dreadfully ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You were ready and willing, only your nerve struck. But here I've been sitting beside you all summer, just so I could pick it up and help you out in an emergency. If I'd let another girl have my place, probably by this time she'd have been an expert. Peggy looked disgusted at her failure to improve her opportunities, but Marian smiled tolerantly. "'Well, Peggy, it's been nice to have you here, even if I haven't made a chauffeur of you, and I've run the car all summer, and it's not likely that anything will happen to me in the little time that's left.' "'How short the summer seems, now that we look back, instead of ahead. What are you going to do this fall, Marian?' "'Enter a nurse's training school,' Marian replied promptly. "'How wonderful! But, oh, Marian!' You don't suppose the war will last till you finished your training? And Peggy blanched at the thought. 
i don't believe it can peggy and yet when it started over in europe people thought it would be ending in a few weeks they proved mathematically didn't they that it would have to stop in six months because all the nations would be bankrupt something in peggy's eyes kept her from continuing in this vein whether it ends sooner or later she said briskly they're going to need swarms of nurses for a good long time after supper peggy had a little talk with alice cameron and repeated the question she had put to marian what are you going to do after you finish here alice i'm going with the red cross the first of october peggy i'm so happy about it that i don't know what to do i should think so peggy sighed her sunny face clouding over alice looked at her inquiringly and it did not take any urging to induce peggy to speak alice i don't know what to do of course when i entered college i took it for granted i was going right through the four years course we hadn't gone into the war then and i guess i was only half awake anyway but now everything is different there's so much work to be done that it seems selfish to spend one's time poring over books i'm not sure that poring over books isn't the most important thing you can do peggy this war strikes at everything good and especially at education see how the men in the english universities rush to volunteer and that's always the way while many of the college boys are under the draft age they're not willing to take advantage of their immunity most of those who are physically fit will volunteer and comparatively few of them will go back to college after the war's over especially if it lasts several years we can't afford to let the standard down for our generation peggy i honestly think that anyone who resists the call of these stirring times and keeps on at college is doing a real patriotic service alice had spoken with unwonted earnestness and suddenly she checked herself i sound like a liberty loan orator she laughed it sounds awful sensible to me and inspiring too it's a comfort to think that when you're doing the thing you've wanted to do all your life you're serving your country at the same time it's clear enough if you take the long view it isn't only a question of what america needs today, but what she's going to need in ten years or twenty of course alice added thoughtfully you girls who are in college now will miss a lot of fun we older ones had i can't imagine you're spending money for class spreads the way we used to with children starving in belgium i should think not flashed peggy you'll miss a lot of fun but you'll have something we missed when i realize how little thought we girls gave our country from the beginning of our course to the end i'm not sure that you're not more to be envied than pitied peggy i'm afraid i'm beginning to be oratorical again but i can't help it i hope that henceforth education is going to include a course in americanism running all the way from the kindergarten through the universities i know scores of people who had to wait till the war to find that there was any duty they owed their country this little talk was helpful to more than peggy for priscilla who owned to the same restlessness that had attacked peggy confessed that it put quite a different face on the matter when you look on a college education as a patriotic service amy who had not made up her mind regarding further school work became very thoughtful when peggy repeated to her the substance of what alice had said and peggy herself who had sternly repressed all tendency to look forward to taking up the work of her sophomore year as unworthy the stern times in which she lived now permitted herself the luxury of cheerful anticipations on friday of that week the girls who were working at the sweetwater farm finished their assigned task about three o'clock in the afternoon and their employer generously decided to give them the two hours remaining i've had my eye on you all the week and there hain't been a mite of shirking or hanging back i'll pay you for a full day's work and you can use the time from now till supper just as you please as the girls climbed into the bus they gave three cheers for farmer taylor 
and when his buxom, smiling wife came out on the porch to see them off, they cheered her as well. Marianne drove away as they were beginning on a three times three for Sweetwater Farm. Fifteen minutes later, as the bus approached a small farmhouse, rather in need of paint, and looking very insignificant beside the towering barn, Peggy, who still occupied the seat beside Marian, touched her arm. "'Marian, I believe I'll stop here. Don't you remember this is the place where they had that little crippled girl? I told her that I'd come to see her again some day, and I'm afraid that if I don't do it now, I won't have another chance. Then you don't want us to wait for you?' "'No, indeed. I dare say they'll drive me home. Anyway, I'll get back some way.' The car came to a halt, and Peggy alighted. With a wave of her hand to her companions, she approached the house. The shutters of the front rooms were closed, so that the building had a look of being unoccupied. But strident voices sounding in the rear gave assurance that someone was at home. Peggy went around the side of the house to the kitchen, wondering as she drew near whether she had chosen an opportune time for her call. Apparently several people were talking at once, and very shrilly. The argument, if argument it was, seemed hardly amicable. But by now the bus was beyond recalling and Peggy did not care to take a walk of several miles in the hot sun unless it should be absolutely necessary. Summoning her resolution, she climbed the steps and crossed the porch. Although the flies were swarming, the screen door leading into the kitchen was ajar. Two women stood in the middle of the room engaged in a debate which, from all appearances, might easily have become a quarrel. Peggy recognized one of them as Mrs. Lane, the mother of the little cripple she had come to see. The other woman she did not know, though when Mrs. Lane called her by name a moment later, she remembered that it was the name of a farmer living a quarter of a mile up the road. "'As far as I'm concerned, Mrs. Mowry,' declared Mrs. Lane, with feeling, "'I ain't one to grudge my country a few jars of canned stuff, more or less. What the government wants, the government can have.' "'And I say,' choked the other woman tearfully, "'that it's the next thing to stealing, government or no government.' First they tell people to put up everything they can, all kinds of garden stuff and preserves besides. And the next thing you know, they're around telling you that you've got too much for a family of your size and taking whatever they please. They take the sons of some mothers, exclaimed Mrs. Lane. Our children ain't old enough to wear the uniform, so we get off with a few jars. Don't worry, he took two hams off me, flared Mrs. Mowry. He said that it was pretty near time for new hams, and the government didn't allow anybody to have so many in the storeroom at this time of year. And then he took a cheese. "'It ain't as if they was going to be wasted,' Mrs. Lane remonstrated. "'I guess the stuff the government takes this way it feeds to the soldier boys, and they're welcome to everything I've got in my cellar.' Up to this time Peggy had stood on the porch, unnoticed by either of the two disputants or their audience of half a dozen children. Now she advanced into the room. "'Good afternoon,' she said, her voice suggesting that the excitement of the group was contagious. Both women turned. It was evident that Mrs. Lane at once recognized Peggy, for although she did not call her by name, her face brightened, as if the girl's presence reinforced her argument. "'Look at her!' cried Mrs. Lane, extending her hand toward Peggy with an oratorical flourish. "'See what she's doing for her country. She's a young lady, goes to college, and like enough takes music lessons, and I don't know what all.' and here she is in overalls working out of doors like a farmhand and never saying a word and here you and i are making a fuss over a few jars and two hams interpolated mrs mowry feelingly and a cheese excuse me interrupted peggy who had listened to the conversation with extraordinary interest 
but as I stood outside I couldn't help overhearing. Would you mind telling me just what has happened? Why, it's this way, exclaimed Mrs. Lane. A government agent has just been around commandeering part of the stuff we've put up this summer. You may call it commandeering if you like, sniffed Mrs. Mowry, but I can't see where it's any different from stealing. The way they do it, continued Mrs. Lane, addressing herself to Peggy and ignoring her neighbor, is first they look over all the stuff you've canned, and then they ask the size of your family. It seems the government allows you just so much a person, and then they take the rest. But the government has been urging people to put up as much as they possibly could, Peggy cried, amazed. That's what I say, whined Mrs. Mowry, evidently gratified at having found an ally. They tell you to can things, and then they take the cans away. I'm going to bury the rest of my stuff, she added, and dig it up as I'm ready to use it. Well, I'm not, shouted Mrs. Lane. Whatever the government wants from me, it's only got to ask for. Peggy broke in impatiently. Admirable as Mrs. Lane's sentiments were, it seemed evident that her patriotism had made her an easy victim. How did you know the man was a government agent? she asked. Well, he said he was. Mrs. Lane was evidently taken aback by the question. And he had something called his badge, a red, white, and blue thing. Was that all? Yes, that was all. Why, you don't mean— cried Mrs. Lane, that he wasn't a government man. I'm sure he wasn't. He may be a plain swindler, or this may be one form of propaganda to make people discontented and suspicious of the government. Peggy was getting tremendously excited. Which way did he go? He went from here to my house, screamed Mrs. Mowry. I guess he's going right on down the road. Did he have a machine? Yes, a Ford car. For a moment they stood looking at one another uncertainly. "'If only the men were at home,' groaned Mrs. Lane. "'But they're over at Wally Corson's threshing.' "'Didn't I see a bicycle out on the porch?' Peggy demanded. "'Couldn't I take that?' "'Sure you can take it, but you can't catch an automobile with a bicycle. "'I suppose he stops at some of the houses quite a while.' "'He stopped quite a while at my house, I can tell you,' boasted Mrs. Mowry. "'And I wouldn't have given him a thing if he hadn't said he had orders to arrest anybody that resisted.' If I can't catch him, probably I'll see someone in a car who can do it, a man. He took my whole batch of spiced gooseberries, lamented Mrs. Lane. And if there's anything William is partial to, it's spiced gooseberries. I didn't mind while I thought it was for the government, but if it's a swindler... Peggy ran out on the porch, though she had arrived on the scene of action too late to benefit by the period when every girl worth her salt rode a wheel. She had nevertheless mastered the art and gained considerable proficiency on Dick's bicycle. The wheel upon the porch was a shabby specimen, splashed with mud, but the tires were full and round, with the appearance of having been recently pumped up. Peggy sprang to the seat with ease, due to the fact that she had on her working clothes, and, pedaling furiously, she started down the road, on the lookout for a Ford car laden with provisions. End of chapter 19